Hello, Ratchet Book Club listeners. Before I get to the episode, I want to take a moment to address the June 24th Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the legal right to have a safe and legal abortion. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. This decision can also lead to the loss of other rights. To learn more about what you can do to help, go to podvoices.help. I encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 70. A momentous day for Celestina. A night of nights. And a new dawn in the forecast. Here began a life about which she had dreamed since she were a young girl. By ones and twos, the festive crowd eventually deconstructed, but for Celestina, an excitement lingered in the usual gallery hush that rebuilt in her wake. On the serving table, the canapé trays held only stained paper doilies, crumbs, and empty plastic champagne glasses. She herself had been too nervous to eat anything. She had held the same glass of untasted champagne throughout the evening, clutching it as though it were a mooring buoy that would prevent her from being swept away in a storm. Now her mooring was Wally Lipscomb, obstetrician, pediatrician, landlord, and best friend, who arrived halfway through a reception. As she listened to Helen Greenbaum's sales report, Celestina held Wally's hand so tightly that had it been a plastic champagne flute, it would have cracked. According to Helen, more than half the paintings had been sold by the close of the reception, a record for the gallery. With the exhibition scheduled to run a full two weeks, she was confident that they would enjoy a sellout or the next thing to it. From time to time now, you're going to be written about, Helen warned. Be prepared for a peevish critic or two, furious about your optimism. My dad's already armored me, Celestina assured her. He says art lasts but critics are the buzzing insects on a single summer day. Her life was so blessed that she could have dealt with a horde of locusts, let alone a few mosquitoes. At Tom Vanadium's request, the taxi dropped him one block from his new and temporary home, shortly before 10 o'clock in the evening. Although the mummifying fog wound white mysteries around even the most ordinary objects and wrapped every citizen in anonymity, Vanadian preferred to approach the apartment building with utmost discretion. Whatever the length of his stay in this place, he would never depart or arrive through the front door or even through the basement level garage until perhaps his last day. He followed an alleyway to the building's service entrance, for which he possessed a key that wasn't provided to other tenants. 
He unlocked the steel door and stepped into a small, dimly lighted receiving room with gray walls and a speckled blue linoleum floor. To the left, a door led to a back staircase, accessible with the special key already in his hand. To the right, a key-operated service elevator, for which he had been provided a separate key. He rode up to the third of five floors in the service elevator, which other tenants were permitted to use only when moving in or moving out, or when taking delivery of large items of furniture. Another elevator at the front of the building was too public to suit his purposes. The third floor apartment directly over Enoch Kane's unit had been leased by Simon Magison through his corporation ever since it became available in March of 66, 22 months ago. By the time this operation concluded and the sulfurous Mr. Kane was brought to some form of justice, Simon might have spent 20 or 25% of the fee that he had collected from the liability settlement in the matter of Naomi Kane's death. The attorney put a substantial price on his dignity and reputation. And although Simon would have denied it, would have even joked that a conscience was a liability for an attorney, he possessed a moral compass. When he traveled too far along the wrong trail, that magnetized needle in his soul led him back from the land of the lost. The apartment had been furnished with only two padded folding chairs and a bare mattress in the living room. The mattress was on the floor, without benefit of a bed frame or box springs. In the kitchen were a toaster, a radio, a coffee pot, two place settings of cheap flatware, a small mismatched collection of thrift shop plates and bowls and mugs, and a freezer full of TV dinners and English muffins. These Spartan arrangements were good enough for vanadium. He had arrived from Oregon the previous night with three suitcases full of his clothes and personal effects. He expected that his unique combination of detective work and psychological warfare would enable him to entrap Kane in a month before these accommodations began to feel too austere, even for one to whom anything fancier than a monk's cell could seem baroque. Allowing one month for the job might be optimistic. On the other hand, he'd had a long time to perfect the strategy. Using this apartment as a base, Nolly and Kathleen had conducted some of the small skirmishes in the first phase of the war, including the ghost serenades. They left the place tidy. Indeed, the only sign that they had ever been there was a packet of dental floss left behind the sill of a living room window. The telephone was operative, and Vanadium dialed the number of the building superintendent, Sparky Vox. Sparky had an apartment in the basement, on the upper of two subterranean floors, adjacent to the garage entrance. In his 70s, but vigorous and full of fun, Sparky liked to take an occasional jaunt to Reno to pump the slot machines and try a few hands of blackjack. The off-the-record, tax-free monthly checks from Simon were gratefully received, ensuring the old man's cooperation with the conspiracy. Sparky wasn't a bad guy, not easily bought, and if he had been asked to sell out any tenant other than Kane, he probably wouldn't have done so at any price. He greatly disliked Kane, however, and considered him to be as strange and creepy as a syphilitic monkey. The syphilitic monkey comparison struck Tom Vanadium as bizarre, but it turned out to be a sober judgment based on experience. In his 50s, Sparky had worked as the chief of maintenance at a medical research laboratory where, among other projects, monkeys had been intentionally infected with syphilis and then observed over their lifespan. In the terminal stages, some of the primates engaged in such outre behavior that they had prepared Sparky for his eventual encounter with Enoch Kane. Last night, in the superintendent's basement apartment, as they shared a bottle of wine, Sparky had told Vanadium numerous weird tales about Kane, 
the night he shot off his toe, the night he was saved from a meditative trance and a paralytic bladder, the night the psychotic girlfriend bought a Vietnamese pot-belly pig to his apartment when he was out and fed it laxatives and pinned it in his bedroom. After all he had suffered at Kane's hands, Tom Vanadium surprised himself by laughing at these colorful accounts of the wife killer's misadventures. Indeed, laughter has seemed disrespectful to the memories of Victoria Bressler and Naomi, and Vanadium had been torn between a desire to hear more and a feeling that finding any amusement value in a man like Kane will leave a stain on the soul that no amount of penance could scrub away. Sparky Vox, with less training in theology and philosophy than his guests, but with a spiritual insight that any overeducated Jesuit would have to admire, even if grudgingly, had settled Vanadium's uneasy conscience. The problem with movies and books is that they make evil seem glamorous, exciting, when it's no such thing. It's boring, and it's depressing, and it's stupid. Criminals are all after cheap thrills and easy money, and when they get them, all they want is more of the same, over and over again. They're shallow, empty, boring people who couldn't give you five minutes of interesting conversation if you had the piss-poor luck to be at a party full of them. Maybe even some could be monkey-clever some of the time, but they aren't hardly ever smart. God must surely want us to laugh at these fools, because if we don't laugh at them, then one way or the other, we give them respect. If you don't mock a bastard like Cain, if you fear him too much, or if you even just look at him in an all-solemn sort of way, then you're paying him more respect than I ever intend to. Another glass of wine? Now, 24 hours later, when Sparky answered his telephone and heard Tom Vanadium, he said, You looking for a little company? I got another bottle of Merlot where the last one came from. Thanks, Sparky, but not tonight. I'm thinking of taking a look around downstairs if old Nine Toes isn't stuck at home tonight with a case of paralytic bladder. Last I noticed, his car was out. Let me check. Sparky put down his phone and went to look in the garage. When he returned, he said, nope, it's still out. When he parties, he usually parties late. Will you hear him when he comes in? I will if I make a point of it. If he gets back within the next hour, better ring me at his place so I can scoot. Will do. Check out those paintings he collects. People pay real money for them, even people who have never been in a loony bin. Wally and Celestina went to dinner at the Armenian restaurant from which he had gotten takeout on the day of 65 that he rescued her and Angel from Nettie Nathic. Red tablecloths, white dishes, dark wood paneling, a cluster of candles and red glasses on each table, air redolent of garlic and roasted peppers and kebab and sizzling sujuk, plus a personable staff, largely of the owner's family, created an atmosphere as right for celebration as for intimate conversation and Celestina expected to enjoy both, because this promised to be a most momentous day in more ways than one. The past three years had given Wally much to celebrate as well. After selling his medical practice and taking an eight-month hiatus from the 60-hour work weeks he had endured for so long, he had been giving 24 hours of free service to a pediatric clinic each week, providing care to the disadvantaged. He had worked hard all his life and saved diligently, and now he was able to focus solely on those activities that gave him the greatest gratification. He had been a godsend to Celestina, because his love of children and a new sense of fun that he had discovered in himself were showered on Angel. He was Uncle Wally. Waddling Wally, Wobbly Wally, Wally Walrus, Wally Werewolf. Wally with the funny accents. Wiggler Wally, Whistling Wally, Wrangler Wally. He was good golly Wally, the friend of all pollywogs. Angel adored him, 
adored him. And he could have loved her no more if she had been one of the sons that he had lost. Overwhelmed by her classes, her waitressing job, her painting, Celestina could always count on Wally to step in to share the child rearing. He wasn't merely Angel's honorary uncle, but her father in all senses except the legal and biological. He wasn't just her doctor, but a guardian angel who fretted over her mildest fever and worried about all the ways the world could wound a child. I'm paying, Celestina insisted when they were seated. I'm now a successful artist, with untold numbers of critics just waiting to savage me. He snatched up the wine list before she could look at it. If you're paying, then I'm ordering whatever costs the most, regardless of what it tastes like. Sounds reasonable. Chateau Le Bucks, 1886. We can have a bottle of that, or you can buy a new car. And personally, I think thirst comes before transportation. She said, Did you see Nettie Nathic? Where? He looked around the restaurant. No, at the reception. He wasn't. By the way, he acted. You'd have sworn he gave me and Angel shelter in the storm back then, instead of turning us out to freeze in the snow. Amused, Wally said, You artists do love to dramatize. Or have I forgotten the San Francisco blizzard of 65? How could you not remember the skier slaloming down Lombard Street? Oh, yeah. I recall it now. Polar bears eating tourists in Union Square. Wolf packs prowling the heights. Wally Lipscomb's face, as long and narrow as ever, seemed not at all like the dour visage of an undertaker, as once it had, but rather like the rubbery mug of one of those circus clowns who could make you laugh as easily by striking an exaggeratedly sad frown as by putting on a goofy grin. She saw a warmth of spirit where once she had seen spiritual indifference, vulnerability where once she had seen an armored heart, great expectations where once she had seen withered hope. She saw kindness and gentleness where they had always been, but now in more generous measure than before. She loved this long, narrow, homely, wonderful face, and she loved the man who wore it. So much argued against the idea that they could succeed as a couple. In this age where race supposedly didn't matter anymore, it sometimes seemed to matter more year by year. Age mattered too, and at 50, he was 26 years older than she was, old enough to be her father as surely her father would have quietly, but pointedly, and repeatedly observe. He was highly educated, with multiple medical degrees, and she had gone to art school. Yet had the obstacles been piled twice as high, the time had come to put into words what they felt for each other, and to decide what they intended to do about it. Celestina knew that in depth and intensity, as well as in the promise of passion, Wally's love for her equal hers for him. Out of respect for her, and perhaps because the sweet man doubted his desirability, he tried to conceal the true power of his feelings and actually thought he succeeded, though in fact he was radiant with love. His once brotherly kisses on the cheeks, his touches, his admiring looks were all still chaste, but even more tender with the passage of time. And when he held her hand, as in the gallery this evening, whether as a show of support or simply to keep her safely beside him in a crosswalk on a busy street, Dear Wally was overcome by a wistfulness and a longing that Celestina vividly remembered from junior high school. When 13-year-old boys, their gazes filled with purest adoration, would be struck numb and mute by the conflict between yearning and inexperience. On three occasions recently, he seemed on the brink of revealing his feelings, which he would expect to surprise if not shock her, but the moment had never been quite right. For her... 
The suspense that grew throughout dinner didn't have much to do with whether or not Wally would pop the question. Because if he didn't broach the subject this time, she intended to take the initiative. Instead, Celestino was more tense about whether or not Wally expected that a heartfelt expression of commitment should be sufficient to induce her to sleep with him. She held the two minds about this. She wanted him, wanted to be held and cherished, to satisfy him and be satisfied. But she was the daughter of a minister. The concept of sin and consequences were perhaps less deeply ingrained in some daughters of bankers or bakers than in a child of a Baptist clergyman. She was an anachronism in this age of easy sex, a virgin by choice, not by lack of opportunity. Although she'd recently read a magazine article containing the claim that even in this era of free love, 49% of brides were virgins on their wedding day, she didn't believe it and assumed that she had chanced upon a publication that had fallen through a reality warp between this world and a more prudish one parallel to it. She was no prude. But she wasn't a spendthrift either, and her honor was a treasure that shouldn't be thoughtlessly thrown away. Honor. <laughs> she sounded like a maid of old, pining in a castle tower, waiting for her Sir Lancelot. I'm not just a virgin, I'm a freak. But even putting the idea of sin aside for a moment, assuming that maidenly honor was as passe as bustles, she still preferred to wait to savor the thought of intimacy, to allow expectation to build, and to start their conjugal life together with no slightest possibility of regret. There, there's a lot of regret if you don't have sex before marriage. It's a lot. Like, a lot, a lot. Like, what if y'all hold out until you get married, and then you find out that he's just no good at it? Like, honestly bad at it like no desire to do anything to pleasure you or please you no desire to lubricate you, no desire to do anything and you don't know that because you held out until you got married what if you find out that uh he has a micro hmm? what if you find out that this guy looks upon sex as the ultimate sin and will not be intimate with you at all what if this guy withholds intimacy after it's given once? All these things sound funny, and yet all these things are things that I have heard about and encountered in my life um, through studies. They didn't happen to me, but through studies. So, yeah, uh, holding out till you get married is a preference choice that you make, but there are risks to it. And I'm not here to slut shame anybody and I'm not here to chast shame anybody. I'm just telling you that there are downsides to waiting. Especially if you're Catholic. Like, y'all aren't allowed to get divorced, right? So, yeah. At least that's what they used to say back in like the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. I hope they updated that. Because a lot of bad stuff was happening to a lot of people because they couldn't get out of those horrible marriages that they were locked into. Nevertheless, she had decided that if he were ready for the commitment that she believed he had already teetered on the edge of expressing three times, then she would set aside all misgivings in the name of love and would lie down with him and hold him and give of herself with all her heart. Twice during dinner, he seemed to draw near the subject, but then he circled around it and flew off, each time to report some news of little relevance or to recount something funny that Angela said. 
They were each down to one last sip of wine, studying dessert menus, when Celestina began to wonder if, in spite of all instincts and indications, she might be wrong about the state of Wally's heart. The signs seemed clear, and if his radiance wasn't love, then he must be dangerously radioactive. And yes, she might be wrong. She was a woman of some insight, quite sophisticated in many ways, with the raw nerve perceptions of an artist. However, in matters of romance, she was an innocent, perhaps even more pitifully naive than she realized. As she perused the list of cakes and tarts and homemade ice creams, she allowed doubt to feed upon her. And as the thought grew that Wally might not love her that way, after all, she became desperate to know, to end the suspense, because if she didn't mean to him what he meant to her, then Daddy was just going to have to accept her conversion from Baptist to Catholic, because she and Angel had to spend some serious heart recovery time in a nunnery. Between the one-line description of the baklava and the menu's more effusive words about the walnut mamuls, the suspense became too much, the doubt too insidious, at which point Celestina looked up and said, with more girlish angst in her voice than she had planned, Maybe this isn't the place. Maybe it isn't the time. Or maybe it's the time but not the place. Or the place but not the time. Or maybe the time and the place is right but the weather's wrong. I don't know. Oh Lord, listen to me. But I really got to know if you can, if you are, how you feel. Whether you feel. I mean, whether you think you could feel. Instead of gaping at her as though she had been possessed by an inarticulate demon, Wally urgently fumbled a small box out of his jacket pocket and blurted, Will you marry me? He hit Celestina with the big question, the huge question, just as she paused in her babbling to suck in a deep breath, the better to spout off even more nonsense. Whereupon this panicky inhalation caught in her breast, caught so stubbornly that she was certain she would need the attention of paramedics to start breathing again. But then Wally popped open the box, revealing a lovely engagement ring, the sight of which made the trapped breath explode from her. And then she was breathing fine, although snuffling and crying and just generally a mess. I love you, Wally. Grinning, but with an odd edge of concern in his expression as Celestina could see even through his tears, Wally said, Does that mean you... You will? Will I love you tomorrow, you mean? And the day after tomorrow and on forever? Of course, Wally. Forever. Always. Mary, I mean. Her heart fell and her confusion soared. Isn't that what you asked? And is that what you answered? Oh, she blotted her eyes on the heels of her hands. Wait, give me a second chance. I can do it better. I'm, I'm sure I can. Me too. He closed the ring box. Took a deep breath. Open the box again. Celestina, when I met you, my heart was beating, but it was dead. It was cold inside me. I thought it would never be warm again, but because of you, it, it is. You've given my life back to me, and I want now to give my life to you. Will you marry me? Celestina extended her left hand, which shook so badly that she nearly knocked over both their wine glasses. I will. Neither of them were aware that their personal drama and all its clumsiness and glory have focused the attention of everyone in the restaurant. The cheer that went up at Celestina's acceptance of his proposal caused her to start, knocking the ring from Wally's hand as he attempted to slip it on her finger. The ring bounced across the table, and they both grabbed for it. Wally made the catch, and this time she was properly betrothed, 
to wild applause and laughter. Dessert was on the house. The waiter brought the four best items on the menu to spare them the need to make two small decisions after having made such a big one. After coffee had been served, when Celestina and Wally were no longer the center of attention, he indicated the array of desserts with his fork, smiled, and said, I just want you to know, Sully, that these are sweets enough until we're married. She was astonished and moved. I'm a hopeless throwback to the 19th century. How, how could you realize what's been on my mind? It was in your heart, too. And anything that's in your heart is there for anyone to see. Will your father marry us? Once he regains consciousness, we'll have a grand wedding. It doesn't have to be grand, she said with a seductive leer. But if we're going to wait, then the wedding better be soon. From Sparky, Tom Vanadium had borrowed a master key with which he could open the door to Kane's apartment. But he preferred not to employ it as long as he could enter by a back route. The less often he used the halls that were frequented by residents, the more likely he would be able to keep his flesh and blood presence a secret from Kane and sustain his ghostly reputation. If too many tenants got a look at his memorable face, he would become a topic of discussion amongst neighbors, and the wife killer might tumble to the truth. He raised the window in the kitchen and climbed outside, onto the landing of the fire escape. Feeling like a high-roaming cousin to the Phantom of the Opera, Bearing the requisite fearsome scars, if not the unrequited love for a soprano, Vanadium descended through the foggy night, down two flights of the switchback iron stairs to the kitchen at Kane's apartment. All windows opening onto the fire escape featured a laminated sandwich of a glass and steel wire mesh to prevent easy access by burglars. Tom Vanadium knew all the tricks of the best B&E artists, but he didn't need to break in in order to enter here. During the cleaning, insulation of new carpet, and painting that had followed the removal of the diuretic pig set loose by one of Kane's disgruntled girlfriends, the wife killer spent a few nights in a hotel. Nolly had taken advantage of the opportunity to bring his associate James Honeycomb, Jimmy Gadget, onto the premises to provide a customized, undetectable exterior window latch release. As he had been instructed, Vanadium felt along the return edge of a carved limestone casing to the right of the window until he located a quarter-inch diameter steel pin that protruded an inch. The pin was grooved to facilitate a grip. An insistent, steady pull was required, but as promised, the thumb-turned latch on the inside disengaged. He raised the lower sash of the tall, double-hung window and slipped quietly into the dark kitchen. Because the window served also as an emergency exit, it wasn't set above a counter, and ingress was easy. This room didn't face the street by which Kane would approach the building, so Vanadium switched on the lights. He spent 15 minutes examining the mundane contents of the cupboards, searching for nothing in particular, merely getting an idea how the suspect lived, and, admittedly, hoping for an item as helpful to a conviction as a severed head in the refrigerator, or at least a plastic-wrapped kilo of marijuana in the freezer. He found nothing especially gratifying, switched off the lights, and moved on to the living room. If Kane was coming home, he could glance up from the streets and see lights ablaze here, so Vanadium resorted to a small flashlight, always carefully hooding the lens with one hand. Nolly, Kathleen, and Sparky had prepared him for an industrial woman, but when the flashlight beam flared off her fork and fan blade face, Vanadium twitched in fright. Without fully realizing what he was doing, he crossed himself. The white Buick glided through the tides of fog like a ghost ship plying a ghost sea. Bars. Mm. 
The white Buick glided through the tides of fog like a ghost ship plying a ghost sea. Take that, cartel. <laughs> Sorry. Wally drove slowly, carefully, with all the responsibility that you would expect from an obstetrician, pediatrician, and spanking new fiancé. The trip home to Pacific Heights took twice as long as it would have taken in clear weather on a night without a pledge of troth. He wanted Celestina to sit in her seat and use her lap belt, but she insisted on cuddling next to him, as if she were a high school girl and he were her teenage beau. Although this was perhaps the happiest evening of Celestina's life, it wasn't without a note of melancholy. She couldn't avoid thinking about Femi. Happiness could draw to unspeakable tragedy with such vigor that it produced dazzling blooms and lush green bracts. This insight served for Celestina as a primary inspiration for her painting and as proof of the grace granted in this world that we might perceive and be sustained by the promise of an ultimate joy to come. Out of Femi's humiliation, terror, suffering, and death had come Angel, who Celestina had first and briefly hated, but whom now she loved more than she loved Wally, more than she loved herself or even life itself. Femi, through Angel, had brought Celestina both to Wally and to a fuller understanding of their father's meaning when he spoke of this momentous day. An understanding that brought power to her painting and so deeply touched the people who saw and bought her art. Not one day in anyone's life, so her father taught, is an uneventful day. No day without profound meaning, no matter how dull and boring it might seem, no matter whether you're a seamstress or a queen, a shoeshine boy or a movie star, a renowned philosopher or a Down syndrome child. Because in every day of your life, there are opportunities to perform little kindnesses for others, both by conscious acts of will and unconscious example. Each smallest act of kindness, even just words of hope when they're needed, the remembrance of a birthday, a compliment that engenders a smile, reverberates across great distances and spans of time, affecting lives unknown to the one whose generous spirit was a source of this good echo. Because kindness is passed on and grows each time it's passed, until a simple courtesy becomes an act of selfless courage years later and far away. Likewise, each small meanness, each thoughtless expression of hatred, each envious and bitter act, regardless of how petty, can inspire others and is therefore the seed that ultimately produces evil fruit, poisoning people whom you have never met and never will. All human lives are so profoundly and intricately entwined, those dead, those living, those generations yet to come, that the fate of all is the fate of each, and the hope of humanity rests in every heart and in every pair of hands. Therefore, after every failure, we are obliged to strive again for success, and when faced with the end of one thing, we must build something new and better in the ashes. Just as from pain and grief, we must weave hope, for each of us is a thread critical to the strength, to the very survival of a human tapestry. Every hour in every life contains such often unrecognized potential to affect the world that the great days for which we, in our dissatisfaction, so often yearn are already with us. All great days and thrilling possibilities are combined always in this momentous day. That was what I was saying earlier. I, I had forgotten this part of the book. Like, I love this book, but you know, you don't remember every aspect of a book. But I read this book when I was young, and you never know what will affect your life. This book may have affected my life. To the point where I carried that thought with me.
But that's what I was saying before. Like, don't give up. Don't stop. You never know who you're affecting. You never know whose world you're changing, whose world you're building. I love this book. And I hope y'all love it too. <sighs> or, as her father often said, happily mocking his own rhetorical eloquence. Brighten the corner where you are, and you'll light the world. Bartholomew, huh? Asked Wally as he piloted them through banks of earthbound clouds. Startled, Celestina said, Good grief, you're spooky. How could you know what I'm thinking? I already told you. Anything in your heart is as easy to read as an open page of a book. In the sermon that brought him a moment of fame that he had found more uncomfortable than not, Daddy had used the life of Bartholomew to illustrate his point that every day in every life is of the most profound importance. Bartholomew is arguably the most obscure of the twelve disciples. Some would say Labaius is less known. Some might even point to Thomas the doubter. But Bartholomew certainly casts a shadow far shorter than those of Peter, Matthew, James, John, and Philip. Daddy's purpose in proclaiming Bartholomew the most obscure of the twelve was then to imagine in vivid detail how that apostle's actions, seemingly a little consequence at the time, had resonated down through history, through hundreds of millions of lives, and then to assert the life of each chambermaid listening to the sermon, the life of each car mechanic, each teacher, each truck driver, each waitress, each doctor, each janitor, was as important as the resonant life of Bartholomew. Although each dwelt beyond the lamp of fame and labor without the applause of multitudes. At the end of the famous sermon, Celestina had wished to all well-meaning people that into their lives should follow rain of benign effects from the kind and selfish actions of countless Bartholomews whom they would never meet. And he assures those who are selfish or envious or lacking in compassion or who in fact commit acts of great evil that their deeds will return to them, magnified beyond imagining, for they are at war with the purpose of life. If the spirit of Bartholomew cannot enter their hearts and change them, then it will find them and meet out the terrible judgment they deserve. I knew, said Wally, breaking for a red traffic light, that you'd be thinking of Femi now, and thinking of her would lead you to your father's words, because as short as her life might have been, Femi was a Bartholomew. She left her mark. Femi must be honored now with laughter instead of with tears, because her life had left Celestina with so many memories of joy and with joy personified an angel. To fend off tears, she said, Listen, Clark Kent, we women need our little secrets, our private thoughts. If you could really read my heart this easily, I guess I'm going to have to start wearing lead brassieres. Sounds uncomfortable. Don't worry, love. I'll make sure the snaps are constructed so you can get it off me easily enough. Ah, evidently you can read my mind. Scarier than heart reading any day. Maybe there's a thin line between minister's daughter and witch. Maybe. So never cross me. The traffic light turned green. Now onward home. Rolex recovered and bright upon his wrists, Junior Kane drove his Mercedes with a restraint that required more self-control than he had realized he could tap, even with the guidance of Zed. He was so hot with resentment that he wanted to rocket through the hilly streets of the city, ignoring all traffic lights and stop signs, pegging the speedometer needle at its highest mark as though he might eventually be air-cooled by the sufficient speed. He wanted to slam through unwary pedestrians, crack their bones, and send them tumbling. 
So burning with anger was he that his car, by direct thermal transmission from his hands upon the wheel, should have been glowing cherry red in the January night, should have been scorching tunnels of clear dry air through a cold fog. Rancor, virulence, acrimony, vehemence, all words learned for the purpose of self-improvement were useless to him now, because none adequately conveyed the merest minimum of his anger, which swelled as vast and molten as the sun far more formidable than his assiduously enhanced vocabulary. Fortunately, the chill fog didn't burn away from the Mercedes, considering that it facilitated the stocking of Celestina. The mist swaddled the white Buick in which she rode, increasing the chance that the junior might lose track of her, but it also cloaked the Mercedes and all but ensured that she and her friend wouldn't realize that the pair of headlights between them were always those of the same vehicle. Junior had no idea who the driver of the Buick might be. But he hated the tall, lanky son of a bitch because he figured the guy was humping Celestina. Who would have never humped anybody but Junior if she had met him first? Because like her sister, like all women, she would find him irresistible. He felt that he had a prior claim on her because of his relationship to the family. He was the father of her sister's bastard boy, after all, which made him their blood by shared progeny. In his masterpiece, The Beauty of Rage, Channel Your Anger and Be a Winner, Zed explains that every fully evolved man is able to take anger at one person or thing and instantly redirect it to any new person or thing, using it to achieve dominance, control, or any goal he seeks. Anger should not be an emotion that gradually arises again at each new justifiable cause but should be held in the heart and nurtured, under control but sustained, so that the full white-hot power of it can be instantly tapped as needed, whether or not there has been provocation. Busily, earnestly, with great satisfaction, Junior redirected his anger at Celestina and at the man with her. These two were, after all, guardians of the true Bartholomew, and therefore, Junior's enemies. A dumpster and a dead musician that humbled him as thoroughly as he had ever been humbled before. As completely as violent, nervous amesis and volcanic diarrhea had humbled him. And he had no tolerance for being humbled. Humility is for losers. I just want to break into this real quick. Do y'all know who Junior sounds like to me the more I read it as I read it now? Yeah, y'all know. He was your president. Not mine, but he was y'all's. Argue with me if you got time. I don't really care. He does sound like Donald Trump. I bet Trump, if he had the chance to, would have read Zed and just devoured every aspect of it. I don't I don't really care what you think about that. But if you do or don't agree with me, feel free to let me know. I still say that everything I read about uh, Junior Kane screams Donald Trump. And this came out way before he became a dickhead president. In the dark dumpster, tormented by ceaseless torrents of what-ifs, convinced the spirit of Vanadium was going to slam the lid and lock him in with a revivified corpse. Junior had for a while been reduced to the condition of a helpless child. Paralyzed with fear, withdrawn to the corner of the dumpster farthest from the putrefying pianist, squatting in trash, he had shaken with such violence that his castanet teeth had chattered in a frenzied flamingo rhythm to which his bones seemed to knock, knock, Knock on wood. Dun, dun, dun. You can't leave those out there for me. <laughs> His bones seemed to knock, knock, like boot heels on a dance floor. He had heard himself whimpering, but couldn't stop. 
Have felt tears of shame burning down his cheeks but couldn't halt the flow. Have felt his bladder ready to burst from the needle prick of terror, but had, with heroic effort, managed to refrain from wetting his pants. For a while, he thought the fear would end only when he perished from it, but eventually it faded, and in its place poured forth self-pity from a bottomless well. Self-pity, of course, is the ideal fuel for anger, which was why, pursuing the Buick through fog, climbing now towards Pacific Heights, Junior was in a murderous rage. By the time he reached Kane's bedroom, Tom Vanadian recognized that the austere decor of the apartment had probably been inspired by the minimalism that the wife killer had noted in the detective's own house in Spruce Hills. This was an uncanny discovery, troubling for reasons that Vanadium couldn't entirely define, but he remained convinced that his perception was correct. Kane's Spruce Hill home, which he had shared with Naomi, hadn't been furnished anything like this. The difference between there and here, and the similarity to Vanadium's digs, could be explained neither by wealth alone, nor by a change of taste arising from the experience of city life. The barren white walls, the stark furniture starkly arranged, the rigorous exclusion of bric-a-brac and mementos. This resulted in the closest thing to a true monastic cell to be found outside of a monastery. The only quality of the apartment that identified it as a secular residence was its comfortable size. And if industrial woman had been replaced with a crucifix, even size might have been insufficient to rule out residence by some fortunate friar. So, two monks they were. One in the service of everlasting light, the other in the service of eternal darkness. Before he searched the bedroom, Vanadian walked quickly back through the rooms that he had already inspected, suddenly remembering the three bizarre paintings of which Nolly, Kathleen, and Sparky had spoken, and wondering how he could have overlooked them. They were not here. He was able to locate, however, the places on the wall where the artworks had hung, because the nails still bristled from the pocket plaster and picture hooks dangled from the nails. Intuition told Tom Vanadium that the removal of the paintings was significant, but he wasn't a talented enough Sherlock to leap immediately to the meaning of their absence. In the bedroom once more, before pouring through the contents of the nightstand drawers, the dresser drawers, and the closet, he looked in the adjacent bathroom, switched on the light because there was no window, and found Bartholomew on a wall, slashed and punctured, disfigured by hundreds of wounds. Wally parked the Buick at the curb in front of the house in which he lived, and when Celestina slid across the car seat to the pasture door, he said, No, wait here. I'll fetch Angel and drive the two of you home. Good grief, we can walk from here, Wally. It's chilly and foggy and late, and there might be villains afoot at this hour, he intoned with mock gravity. The two of you are Lipscomb women now or soon will be, and Lipscomb women never go unescorted through a dangerous urban night. Hmm, I feel positively pampered. The kiss was lovely, long and easy, full of restrained passion and boded well for nights to come in the marriage bed. I love you, Sally. I love you, Wally. I've never been happier. Leaving the engine running and the heater on, he got out of the car, leaned back inside and said, Better lock up while I'm gone and then closed his door. Although Celestina felt a little paranoid, being so security-minded in this safe neighborhood, nevertheless, she searched out the master control button and engaged the power locks. Lipscomb women gladly obeyed the wishes of Lipscomb men, unless they disagree, of course, or don't disagree, 
but just are feeling mulish. The floor of the spacious bathroom feature beige marble tiles with diamond-shaped inlays of black granite. The countertop and the shower stall were fabricated from marching marble, and the same marble was employed in the wainscoting. Above the wainscoting, the walls were sheetrock, unlike the plaster elsewhere in the apartment. On one of them, Enoch Kane had scrawled Bartholomew three times. Great anger was apparent in the way that the uneven red block letters had been drawn on the wall in hard slashes. But the lettering looked like the work of a calm and rational mind compared to what had been done after the three Bartholomews were printed. With some sharp instrument, probably a knife, Cain had stabbed and gouged the red letters, working on the wall with such fury that two of the Bartholomews were barely readable anymore. The sheet rock was marked by hundreds of scores and punctures. Judging by the smeariness of the letters and the fact that some had ran before they dried, the writing instrument hadn't been a felt-tip marker, as Vanadium first thought. A spattering of red droplets on the closed lid of the toilet and across the beige marble floor, all dry now, gave rise to a suspicion. He spat on his right thumb, scrubbed the thumb against one of the dry drips on the floor, rubbed thumb and forefinger together, and brought this fresh and spore to his nose. He smelled blood. But whose blood? Other three-year-olds, stirred from sleep after 11 o'clock at night, might be grumpy and will certainly be torpid, bleary-eyed, and uncommunicative. Angel Awake was always fully awake, soaking up color texture mood, marveling in the Baroque detail of creation, and generally lending support to the apperception test prediction that she might be an art prodigy. As she clambered through the open door on the Celestina's lap, the girl said, Uncle Wally gave me an Oreo. Did you put it in your shoe? Why my shoe? Is it under your hood? It's in my tummy. Then you can't eat it. I already ate it. Then it's gone forever. How sad. It's not the only Oreo in the world, you know. Is this the most fog ever? It's about the most I've ever seen. As Wally got behind the wheel and closed his door, Angel said, Mommy, where's fog come from? And don't say Hawaii. New Jersey. Before she rats on me, Wally said, I gave her an Oreo. Too late. Mommy thought I put it in my shoe. Getting her into her shoes and coat sooner than Monday required a bribe, Wally said. What's fog? Angel asked. Clouds, Celestina replied. What are clouds doing down here? They've gone to bed. They're tired, Wally told her as he put the car in gear and released a handbrake. Aren't you? Can I have another Oreo? They don't grow on trees, you know, said Wally. Do I have a cloud inside of me now? Celestina asked, Why would you think that, sugar pie? Because I breathed the fog. Better hold on tight to her, Wally warned Celestina, breaking to a halt at the intersection. She'll float up and away, and then we'll have to call the fire department to get her down. What do they grow on, Angel asked. Flowers, Wally answered. And Celestina said, the Oreos are the petals. Where do they have Oreo flowers, Angel asked suspiciously. Hawaii, Wally said. I thought so, Angel said, dubosity squinching her face. Miss Ornwall made me cheese. She's a great cheesemaker, Miss Ornwall, Wally said. In a sandwich, Angel clarified. Why she live with you, Uncle Wally? She's my housekeeper. Could mommy be your housekeeper? 
your mother's an artist. Besides, you wouldn't want to put poor Miss Ornwall out of a job, would you? Everybody needs cheese, Angel said, which apparently meant that Miss Ornwall would never lack work. Mommy, you're wrong. Wrong about what, sugar pie? Celestina asked as Wally pulled to the curb again and parked. The Oreo isn't gone forever. Is it in your shoe after all? Turning in Celestina's lap, Angel said, Smell, and held the index finger of her right hand under her mother's nose. This isn't polite, but I must admit that it smells nice. That's the Oreo. After I ate it up, the cookie went smush smush into my finger. If they always go there, smush smush, then you're going to end up with one really fat finger. Wally switched off the engine and killed the headlights. Home, where the heart is. What heart? Angel asked. Wally opened his mouth and couldn't think of a reply. Laughing, Celestina said to him, You can never win, you know. Maybe it's not where the heart is, Wally corrected himself. Maybe it's where the buffalo roam. On the counter beside the bathroom sink stood an open box of band-aids in a variety of sizes, a bottle of rubbing alcohol, and a bottle of iodine. Tom Vanadium checked the small waste basket next to the sink and discovered a water bloody Kleenex. The crumpled wrappers from two band-aids. Evidently, the blood was Kane's. If the wife killer had cut himself accidentally, his writing on the wall indicated a hair-triggered temper and a deep reservoir of long-nurtured anger. If he had cut himself intentionally for the express purpose of writing the name in blood, then the reservoir wall was deeper still and pent up behind a formidable dam of obsession. In either case, printing the name in blood was a ritualistic act, and ritualism of this nature was an unmistakable symptom of a seriously unbalanced mind. Evidently, the wife killer would be easier to crack than expected, because the shell was already badly fractured. This wasn't the same Enoch Kane who Vanadium had known three years ago on Spruce Hills. That man had been utterly ruthless, but not a wild, raging animal, coldly determined but never obsessive. That cane had been too calculating and too self-controlled to be swept into the emotional frenzy required to produce this blood graffiti and to act out the symbolic mutilation of Bartholomew with a knife. As Tom Vanadium studied the stained and ravaged wall again, a cold and quivery uneasiness settled insectively onto his scalp and down the back of his neck, quickly bored into his blood and nested in his bones. He had a terrible feeling that he was not dealing with the known quantity anymore. Not what the twisted man he thought he understood, but what the new and even more monstrous Enoch Kane. Carrying the tote bag full of Angel's dolls and coloring books, Wally crossed the sidewalk ahead of Celestina and climbed the front steps. She followed with Angel in her arms. The girl sucked in deep lungs full of the weary clouds. Better hold on tight, Mommy. I'm going to float. Not weighed down by cheese and Oreos, you won't. Why is that car following us? What car? Celestina asked, stopping at the bottom of the steps and turning to look. Angel pointed to a Mercedes parked about 40 feet behind the Buick, just as its taillights went off. It's not following us, sugar pie. It's, it's, it's probably a neighbor. Can I have an Oreo? Climbing the stairs, Celestina said, you already had one. Can I have a Snickers? No Snickers. Can I have a Mr. Goodbar? It's not a specific brand you can't have. It's the whole idea of a candy bar. Wally opened the front door and stepped aside. Can I have some Nilla wafers? Celestina breezed through the open door with Angel. 
No vanilla wafers. You'll be up all night with a sugar rush. As Wally followed them into the front hall, Angel said, Can I have a car? Car? Can I? Y you don't drive, Celestina reminded her. I'll teach her, Wally said, moving past him to the apartment door, fishing a ring of keys out of his coat pocket. He'll teach me, Angel triumphantly told her mother. Then I guess we'll get you a car. I want one that flies. They don't make flying cars. Sure they do, said Wally as he unlocked the two deadbolts. But you gotta be 21 years old to get a license for one. I'm three. Then you only have to wait 18 years, he said, opening the apartment door and stepping aside once more, allowing Celestina to precede him. As Wally followed them inside, Celestina grinned at him. From the car to the living room, all is neat as a well-practiced ballet. We've got a big head start on this marriage thing. I gotta pee, Angel said. That's not something we announce to everyone, Celestina chastised. We do when we gotta pee bad. Not even then. Give me a kiss first, Wally said. The girl smooched him on the cheek. Me, me, Celestina said. In fact, fiance should come first. Though Celestina was still holding Angel, Wally kissed her. And again, it was lovely, though shorter than before. And Angel said, that's a messy kiss. I'll come by at 8 o'clock for breakfast, Wally suggested. We have to set a date. Is two weeks too soon? I gotta pee before then, Angel declared. Love you, Wally said. And Celestina repeated it. And he said, I'm gonna stand in the hall till I hear you set both locks. Celestina put Angel down, and the girl raced to the bathroom as Wally stepped into the public hall and pulled the apartment door shut behind him. One lock. Two. Celestina stood listening until she heard Wally open the outer door and then close it. She leaned against the apartment door for a long moment, holding onto the doorknob and to the thumb turn of the second deadbolt, as though she were convinced that if she let go, she would float off the floor like a cloud-stuffed child. In a red coat with a red hood, Bartholomew appeared first in the arms of the tall, lanky man, the Ichabod Kane look-alike, who also had a large tote bag hanging from his shoulder. The guy appeared vulnerable, his arms occupied with the kid in the bag, and Junior considered bursting out of Mercedes, striding straight to the Celestina humping son of a bitch, and shooting him point-blank in the face. Brain shot, he would drop quicker than if the headless horseman had gotten him with an axe, and the kid would go down with him, and Junior would shoot the bastard boy next, shoot him in the head three times, four, four times just to be sure. The problem was Celestina and the Buick, because when she saw what was happening, she might slide behind the steering wheel and speed away. The engine was running, white plumage rising from the tailpipe and feathering away in the fog, so she might escape if she was a quick thinker. Chase after her on foot. Shoot her in the car. M maybe. He'd have five rounds left if he used one on the man, four on Bartholomew. But with the silencer attached, the pistol was useful only for close-up work. After passing through a sound suppressor, the bullet would exit the muzzle at a lower than usual velocity, perhaps with an added wobble, and accuracy would drop drastically at a distance. He had been warned about this accuracy issue by the thumbless young thug who delivered the weapon in a bag of Chinese takeout in Old St. Mary's Church. Junior tended to believe the warning because he figured the eight-finger felon might have been deprived of his thumbs as punishment for having forgotten to relay the same or an equally important message to a customer in the past, thus assuring his current conscientious attention to detail. Of course, 
he might have also shot off his own thumbs as double insurance against being drafted and sent to Vietnam. Anyway, if Celestina escaped, there would be a witness, and it wouldn't matter to a jury that she was a talentless bitch who painted kitsch. She would have seen Junior get out of the Mercedes and would be able to provide at least a half-accurate description of his car in spite of the fog. He still hoped to pull this off without having to give up his good life on Russian Hill. He wasn't a marksman anyway. He couldn't handle anything more than close-up work. Ichabod passed Bartholomew through the open door to Celestina in the passenger seat, went around the Buick, put the tote bag in the back, and climbed behind the wheel once more. If Junior had realized they were driving only a block and a half, he wouldn't have followed them in the Mercedes. He would have gone the rest of the way on foot. When he pulled to the curb again, a few car lengths behind the Buick, he wondered if he had been spotted. Now here, all three on the street, and vulnerable at once, the man, Celestina, the bastard boy. There would be lots of aftermath with three at once, especially if he took them out with point-blank headshots, but Junior was pumped full of reliable antiemetics, antidiuretics, and antihistamines, so he felt adequately protected from his traitorous sensitive side. In fact, he wanted to see a significant quantity of aftermath this time because it would be proof positive that the boy was dead and that all his torment had come to an end at last. Junior worried, however, that they had noticed him after he pulled to the curb twice behind them, that they were keeping an eye on him, ready to bolt if he got out of the car, in which case they may all make it inside before he could cut them down. Indeed, as Celestine and the kid reached the foot of the steps to the second house, Bartholomew pointed, and the woman turned to look back. She appeared to stare straight at the Mercedes, though the fog made it impossible for Junior to be sure. If they were suspicious of him, they showed no obvious alarm. The three went inside no particular rush, and judging by their demeanor, Junior decided that they hadn't spotted him after all. Lights came on the ground floor window, to the right of the front door. Wait here in the car. Give them time to settle down. At this hour, they would put the kid to bed first. Then Ichabod and Celestina would go to their room, undressed for the night. If Junior was patient, he could slip in there, find Bartholomew, kill the boy in bed, whack Ichabod second, and still have a chance to make love to Celestina. He was no longer hopeful that they would have a future together. After sampling the Junior Kane thrill machine, Celestina would want more, as women always did, but the time for a meaningful romance had now passed. For all the anguish he had been put through, however, he deserved the consolation of her sweet body at least once. A little compensation. Payback. If not for Celestina's slutty little sister, Bartholomew would not exist. No threat. Junior's life would be different. Better. If you're wondering, and this is me, if you're wondering why I never say anything in contrast to what he's saying, if I never say anything that completely just shows how contradictory his words are, it's because if you were listening to this entire book, do you know how contradictory his words are? Do I need to speak them? It's, it's Femi's fault that she got pregnant. Why aren't you speaking on it, Derek? Because we know. We know what really happened. I really don't want to dredge it back up. I mean, he's an evil mother... He's an evil dude. Who caught myself. But I don't want to dredge up every bad thing that he's done because some of it is really just horrifying. Celestina had chosen to shelter the bastard boy. And in doing so, she had declared herself to be Junior's enemy, though he had never done anything to her. Not anything. She didn't deserve him, really. 
Not even one quick bang before the bang of a gun. And maybe after he shot Ichabod, he let her beg for a taste of the cane cane, but deny her. A speeding truck passed, stirring the fog, and the white broth churned past the car windows, a disorienting swirl. Junior felt a little lightheaded. He felt strange. He hoped he wasn't coming down with the flu. The middle finger on his right hand throbbed under a pair of band-aids. He had sliced it earlier, while using the electric sharpener to prepare his knives, and the wound had been aggravated when he had strangled Nettie Nathic. He would never have cut himself in the first place if there had been no need to be well-armed and ready for Bartholomew and his guardians. During the past three years, he has suffered much because of these sisters, including most recently the humiliation in the dumpster with the dead musician, Celestina's pencil-necked friend, with a propensity for post-mortem licking. The memory of that horror flared so vividly, every grotesque detail condensing to one intense and devastating flash of recollection. The junior's bladder suddenly felt swollen and full. Although he had taken a long, satisfying leak in an alleyway across the street from the restaurant, at which the postcard painting poser had enjoyed a leisurely dinner with Ichabod. That was another thing. Junior hadn't gotten his new meal, because the spirit of vanadium had nearly caught up with him when he had been browsing for tie chains and silk pocket squares before lunch. Then he missed dinner as well, because he had to maintain surveillance on Celestina when she didn't go straight home from the gallery. He was hungry. He was starving. This, too, she had done to him. The bitch. More speeding traffic passed, and again the thick fog swirled, swirled. Your deeds will return to you. Magnify beyond imagining. The spirit of Bartholomew will find you and meet out the terrible judgment that you deserve. Those words, in a vertiginous spiral, spooled through the memory taste in Junior's mind, as clear and powerfully affecting and every bit as alarming as the memory flash of the ordeal in the dumpster. He couldn't recall where he had heard them, who had spoken them, but then revelation trembled tantalizingly along the rim of his mind. Before he could replay the memory for further contemplation, Junior saw Ichabod exiting the house. The man returned to the Buick, seeming to float through the mist like a phantom on a moor. He started the engine, quickly hung a U-turn in the street, and drove uphill to the house from which he had earlier collected Bartholomew. In Kane's bedroom, Tom Vanadium's hooded flashlight revealed a six-foot-high bookcase that held approximately a hundred volumes. The top shelf was empty, as was most of the second. He remembered the collection of Caesar's Ed's self-help drivel that had occupied a place of honor in the wife killer's former home in Spruce Hills. Kane owned a hardcover and a paperback of each of Zed's works. The more expensive editions had been pristine, as though they were handled only with gloves. But the text in the paperbacks had been heavily underlined, and the corners of numerous pages had been bent to mark favorite passages. A quick review of these book spines revealed that the treasured Zed collection wasn't here. The walk-in closet, which Vanadium next explored, contained fewer clothes than he expected. Only half the rod space was being used. A lot of empty hangers rang softly, eerily against one another, as he conducted a casual examination of Kane's wardrobe. On a shelf above one of the clothes rods stood a single piece of Mark Cross luggage, an elegant and expensive two-suitor. The rest of the high shelf was empty. Enough space for as many as three more bags. After she flushed, Angel stood on a step stool and washed her hands at the sink. Brush your teeth too, Celestina said, leaning against the jam in the open doorway. Already did. That was before the Oreo. 
I didn't get my teeth dirty, Angel protested. How is that possible? I didn't chew. So you inhaled it through your nose? Swallowed it whole. What happens to people who fib? Wide-eyed. I'm, I'm not fibbing, Mommy. Then what are you doing? I'm... Yes. I'm, I'm just saying... Yes. I'll brush my teeth, Angel decided. Good girl. I'll get your jammies. Junior in the fog, trying oh so hard to live in the future, where the winners live, but being relentlessly sucked back into the useless past by memory. Turning, 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 the mysterious warning in his mind, the spirit of Bartholomew will find you and mete out the terrible judgment that you deserve. He rewound the words, played them again, but still the source of the threat eluded him. He was hearing them in his own voice, as if he had once read them in a book, but he suspected that they had been spoken to him in that an SFPD patrol car swept past, its siren silent, the rack of emergency beacons flashing on its roof. Startled, Junior sat up straight, clutching the silencer-fitted pistol, but the cruiser didn't abruptly break and pull to the curb in front of the Mercedes, as he expected. The revolving beacons dwindled, Casting off blue and red pulses of light, the shimmer swooped through a diffusing fog, as if they were disembodied spirits seeking someone to possess. When Junior checked his Rolex, he realized that he didn't know how long he had been sitting here since Ichabod had driven off from the Buick. Maybe one minute. Maybe ten. Lamplight still glowed behind the ground floor front windows on the right. He preferred to venture inside the house while some lights remained on. He didn't want to be reduced to creeping stealthily in the dark through strange rooms. The very idea filled his guts with shiver chasing shiver. He tugged on a pair of thin latex surgical gloves. Flexed his hands. Alright. Out of the car. Along the sidewalk. Up the steps. From Mercedes to Miss to Murder. Pistol in his right hand. Lock release gun in his left. Three knives and sheaths strapped to his body. The front door was unlocked. This is no longer one house. It had been converted to an apartment building. From the public hallway on the ground level, stairs led to the upper three floors. He would be able to hear anyone descending long before they arrived. No elevator. He didn't have to worry that with no more warning than a ding, doors might slide open, admitting witnesses into the hall. One apartment to the right, one to the left. Junior went to the right, to apartment one, where he had seen the lights come on behind the curtain windows. Wally Lipscomb parked in his garage, switched off the engine, and started to get out of the Buick before he saw that Celestina had left her purse in the car. Flushed with the promise of their engagement, still excited by the success of the gallery, with Angel exuberant in spite of the hour and Oreo energized, he was amazed that they had made the transfer of their little red whirlwind from house to Buick to house with nothing else forgotten than one purse. Sally called it ballet, but Wally thought that it was merely momentary order and chaos. The challenging, joyous, frustrating, delightful, exhilarating chaos of a life full of hope and love and children, which you wouldn't have traded for calm or kingdoms. Without sigh or complaint, he will walk back to her with the purse. The errand was no trouble. In fact, returning the purse would give him a chance to get another good night kiss. One nightstand, two drawers. In the top drawer, in addition to the expected items, Tom Vanadium found a gallery brochure for an art exhibition. In the hooded flashlight beam, the name Celestina White seemed to flare off the glossy paper as though printed in reflective ink. 
In January 65, while vanadium had been in the first month of what proved to be an eight-month coma, Enoch Kane had sought Nally's assistance in a search for Seraphim's newborn child. When Vanadium had learned about this from Magasin long after the event, he assumed that Kane had heard Max Bellini's message on his answering machine, made the connection with Seraphim's death in an accident in San Francisco, and set out to find the child because it was his. Fatherhood was the only imaginable reason for his interest in the baby. Later, in early 66, out of his coma and recovering sufficiently to have visitors, Vanadium spent the most difficult hour with his old friend Harrison White. Out of respect for the memory of his lost daughter, and not at all out of concern for his image as a minister, the Reverend had refused to acknowledge either that Seraphim had been pregnant or that she had been raped. Although Max Bellini had already confirmed the pregnancy and believed, based on cops' instinct, that it had been the consequence of rape. Harrison's attitude seemed to be the Femi was gone, that nothing could be gained by opening this wound, and that even if there were a villain involved, the Christian thing was to forgive, if not forget, and to trust in divine justice. Harrison was a Baptist, Vanadium a Catholic, and although they approached the same faith from different angles, they weren't coming to it from different planets, which was the feeling Vanadium had been left with following their conversation. It was true that Enoch Kane would never be brought successfully to trial for the rape of Feeney, subsequent to her death and in the absence of her testimony. And it was also uncomfortably true that exploring the possibility that Kane was a rapist would tear open the wounds in the hearts of everyone in the White family to no useful effect. Nevertheless, to rely on divine justice alone seemed naive, if not morally questionable. Vanadium understood the depth of his old friend's pain, and he knew that the anguish over the loss of a child could make the best of men act out of emotion rather than good judgment, and so he accepted Harrison's preference to let the matter rest. When enough time had passed for reflection, well, Vanadium ultimately decided that of the two of them, Harrison was the much stronger in his faith, and that he himself, perhaps for the rest of his life, will be more comfortable behind a badge than behind a Roman collar. On the day the Vanadium attended the graveside service for Seraphim and subsequently stopped at Naomi's grave to needle Kane, he had suspected the Femi didn't die in a traffic accident, as claimed, but he hadn't for a moment thought that the wife killer was in any way connected. Now, finding this gallery brochure in the nightstand drawer seemed to be one more bit of circumstantial proof of Kane's guilt. The presence of the brochure disturbed Vanadium also because he assumed that after being dead-ended by Nolly, Kane had subsequently discovered that Celestina had taken custody of the baby to raise it as her own. For some reason, the nine-toed wonder originally believed the child was a boy, but if he had tracked down Celestina, he now knew the truth. Why Kane, even if he were the father, should be interested in a little girl was a mystery to Tom Vanadium. This totally self-involved, spookily hollow man held nothing sacred. Fatherhood would have no appeal for him, and he certainly wouldn't feel any obligation to the child that had resulted from his assault on Femi. Maybe his pursuit of the matter sprang from mere curiosity, the desire to discover what a child of his might look like. However, if something else lay behind his interests, the motivation would not be benign. Whatever Cain's intentions, he would prove to be at least an annoyance to Celestina and the little girl, and possibly a danger. Because Harrison, with the best of intentions, had not wanted to open wounds, Cain could walk up to Celestina anywhere, anytime, and she wouldn't know that he might have been her sister's rapist. To her, his face was that of any stranger. And now Cain was aware of her, interested in her, 
Informed of this development, Harrison would no doubt rethink his position. Carrying the brochure, Vanadian returned to the bathroom and switched on the overhead light. He stared at the slash wall, at the name Red and Ravaged. Instinct, even reason, told him that some connection existed between this person, this Bartholomew, and Celestina. The name had terrified Cain in a bad dream, the very night of the day that he had killed Naomi, and Vanadium therefore had incorporated it into a psychological warfare strategy without knowing its significance to a suspect. As strongly as he sensed the connection, he couldn't find the link. He lacked some crucial bit of information. In this brighter light, he further examined the gallery brochure and discovered Celestina's photograph. She and her sister were not as alike as twins, but the resemblance was striking. If Cain had been attracted to one woman by her looks, surely he would have been attracted to the other. That's the issue I have with this book so far. That's the one issue I've found with this book. It's not attraction. And I don't want you to ever think that attraction precludes sexual assault. There's no attraction here. Cain is a monster. All people who assault people are monsters. I don't like that he wrote that as attraction. That's the one issue I have so far. I just realized that reading it now. And perhaps the sisters shared a quality other than beauty that drew Cain with even greater power. Innocence, perhaps, or goodness, both food for a demon. The title of the exhibition was This Momentous Day. As though he were home to a species of termites that preferred the taste of men to that of wood, Vanadium felt the squirming in his marrow. He knew the sermon, of course. The example of Bartholomew, the theme of chain reaction in human lives, the observation that a small kindness can inspire greater and ever greater kindnesses, of which we never learn, in lives distant both in space and time. He had never associated Enoch Cain's dreaded Bartholomew with the disciple Bartholomew in Harrison White's sermon, which had been broadcast once in December 64, the month prior to Naomi's murder, and again in January 65. Even now, with blood scrawled and stabbed Bartholomew on the wall, and with this momentous day before him in the brochure, Tom Vanadium couldn't quite make the connection. He strove to pull together the broken links in his chain of evidence, but they remained separated by one missing link. What he saw next in the brochure wasn't the link that he sought, but it alarmed him so much that the threefold pamphlet rattled in his hands. The reception for Celestina's show had been this evening, had ended more than three hours ago coincidence nothing more coincidence but both the church and quantum physics contend that there's no such thing coincidence is the result of mysterious design and meaning or a strange order underlying the appearance of chaos take your pick or if you choose feel free to believe that they're one and the same not coincidence then all of these punctures in the wall gouges slashes so much rage required to make them Suitcases appeared to be missing. Some clothes as well. Could mean a weekend vacation. You scrawl names on the wall with your own blood, play psycho with a sheetrock standing for Janet Lee, and then fly out to Reno for a weekend of blackjack stage shows and all-you-can-eat buffet? Not likely. He hurried into the bedroom and switched on the nightstand lamp, without concern for whether the light might be seen from the street. The missing paintings. The missing collection of Zed's books. You didn't take these things with you for a weekend in Reno. You took them if you thought you might never be coming back. In spite of the late hour, he dialed Max Bellini's home number. 
He and the homicide detective have been friends for almost 30 years, since Max had been a uniformed rookie on the SFPD, and Vanadium had been a young priest freshly assigned to St. Anselmo's orphanage here in the city. Before choosing police work, Max had contemplated the priesthood, and perhaps back then he had sensed the cop to be in Tom Vanadium. When Max answered, Vanadium let out his breath in a whoosh of relief and began talking on the inhalation. It's me, Tom, and maybe I've just got a bad case of the heebie-jeebies, but there's something I think you better do, and you better do it right now. You don't get the heebie-jeebies, Max said. You give them. Tell me what's wrong. Two high-quality deadbolt locks. Sufficient protection against the average intruder, but inadequate to keep out a self-improved man with channeled anger. Junior held the silencer-fitted 9mm pistol under his left arm, clamped against his side, freeing both hands to use the automatic pick. He felt lightheaded again, but this time he knew why. Not an oncoming case of the flu. He was straining against the cocoon of his life to date, straining to be born in a new and better form. He had been a pupa, encased in a chrysalis of fear and confusion, but now he was an imago a fully evolved butterfly, because he had used the power of his beautiful rage to improve himself. When Bartholomew was dead, Junior Kane would at last spread his wings and fly. He pressed his right ear to the door, held his breath, heard nothing, and addressed the top lock first. Quietly, he slid the thin pick of the lock-release gun into the key channel, under the pin tumblers. Now came a slight but real risk of being heard inside. He pulled the trigger. The flat steel spring of the lock-release gun caused the pick to jump forward, lodging some of the pins on the shear line. The snap of the hammer against the spring and the click of the pick against the pin tumblers were soft sounds, but anyone near the other side of the door would more likely to not hear them. If she was one room removed, however, the noise would not reach her. Not all the pins were knocked to the shear line with a single pull of the trigger. Three pulls were the minimum required, sometimes as many as six, depending on the lock. He decided to use the tool just three times on each deadbolt before trying the door. The less noise, the better. Maybe luck would be with him. Tick, tick, tick. Tick, tick, tick. He turned the knob. The door eased inward, but he pushed it open only a fraction of an inch. The fully evolved man never has to rely on the gods of fortune, Zed tells us, because he makes his luck with such reliability that he could spit in the face of the gods with impunity. Junior tucked the lock-release gun into a pocket of his leather jacket. In his right hand again, the real gun, loaded with ten hollow-point rounds, fell charged with supernatural power. To Bartholomew, as a crucifix to Dracula, as holy water to a demon, as kryptonite to Superman. As red as Angel had been for her evening outing, she was that yellow for retirement to bed in her own home. Two-piece yellow jersey pajamas. Yellow socks. At the girl's request, Celestina had tied a soft yellow bow on her mass of springy hair. The bow business had started a few months ago. Angel said she wanted to look pretty in her sleep, in case she met a handsome prince in her dreams. Yellow, 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 Angel said with satisfaction as she examined herself in the mirrored closet door. Still my little M&M. I'm going to dream about baby chickens, she told Celestina. And if I'm all yellow, they'll think I'm one of them. You could also dream of bananas, Celestina suggested as she turned down the bedclothes. Don't want to be a banana. Because of her occasional bad dreams, Angel chose to sleep now and then in her mother's bed instead of in her own room. 
And this was one of those nights. Why do you want to be a baby chicken? Because I've never been one. Mommy, are you and Uncle Wally married now? Astonished, Celestina said, Where did that come from? You've got a ring like Miss Muller across the hall. Gifted with unusual powers of visual observation, the girl was quick to notice the slightest change in her world. The sparkling engagement ring on Celestina's left hand had not escaped her notice. He kissed you messy, Angel added, like mushy movie kisses. You're a regular little detective. Will we change my name? Maybe. Will I be Angel Wally? Angel Lipscomb. Though that doesn't sound as good as white, does it? I want to be called Wally. It won't happen. Here, in the bed with you. Angel sprang flat fluttered as quick as a baby chicken to her mother's bed. Bartholomew was dead, but he didn't know it yet. Pistol in hand, cocoon in tatters, ready to spread his butterfly wings, Junior pushed the door to the apartment inward. Saw a deserted living room, softly lighted and pleasantly furnished, and was about to step across the threshold when the street door opened, and into the hall came Ichabod. The guy was carrying a purse, whatever that meant, and when he walked through the door, he had a goofy look on his face. But his expression changed when he saw Junior. So here it came again, the hateful past, returning when Junior thought he was shed of it. This tall, lanky, Celestina humping son of a bitch, guardian of Bartholomew, had driven away, gone home, but he couldn't stay in the past where he belonged, and he was opening his mouth to say, Who are you? Or maybe to shout an alarm. So Junior shot him three times. 916-633-1537 Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com Ratchet Book Club on Twitter Ratchet Book Club on Facebook <laughs> Leave a review on Spotify Takes 13 seconds Leave a review on Podchaser Leave a review on Apple Podcasts Leave a review on the Good Pods app You can also donate to the show at Patreon.com slash Single Simulcast Or at BuyMeACoffee.com slash SSCast or on the Good Pods app. You can leave a tip in the tip jar. Thank you so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. I'll be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace. Outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know my name, did you say?